Hi pedestrians, welcome to Founders University. My name's Chris Warasinha and I'm a co-founder of Pedestrian.tv. Founders Uni is a geeky, in-depth chat with some of our favorite Aussie startup legends. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you want to know how easy it is to build a website on Squarespace, it's time to tune in. I jumped onto Squarespace and registered the domain foundersuni.com. I then chose a website template that worked for our podcast, picked the functionality we needed, typed in the copy and uploaded my images. From there, you simply select your plan and publish. And with the offer code PTV, you get 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. So what are you waiting for? Lisa Messenger is the founder of The Collective Hub a publishing platform dedicated to all things entrepreneurial and an author of over 16 books on the topic. Lisa's passion and ability to break down the how and why of getting your startup or side hustle off the ground is truly engaging. We talked to Lisa about lessons she's learned, like whether it's better to diversify your revenue streams or focus, and how to convince major brands like Commonwealth Bank to back your idea before even launching. Lisa, thank you very much for joining us. My absolute pleasure to be here. It's great. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has. I feel like we need to do a big catch-up over this podcast. Definitely. So we should lots to jump into. So first of all, for those who are unacquainted with Collective Hub and kind of the Messenger Group, can you give us the lowdown of what you guys do in your own words? Yeah. Well, I guess since this is a founder's podcast, I'll go right back to the beginning <laughs> very quickly. So I started my first business in October 2001, so 16 and a half years ago, and Collective I started in March 2013. So it's kind of like um, a 16-year overnight success, I guess, and that's something important for people to listen to. I think they see some kind of success or, you know, doing big things, and it's like, oh, they just want it to happen overnight, and it's all the failures and all the mistakes that I made before that kind of got me to where I am now. Uh, Collective Hub, I started because I saw a gap in the media and I wanted something inspirational and aspirational and kind of the story behind the story for entrepreneurs. I was kind of sick of seeing, you know, this is amazing and this is what we've done. And I was like, no, let's reverse engineer that. Let's really look at what it takes and how hard it is and, you know, and what the supply chain is and how people got investment and all that kind of thing. So I launched crazily a print magazine uh, in March 2013 into a highly saturated market where there were five and a half thousand existing print magazines into an industry people said was either dead or dying. And I had no experience. I had three staff all under the age of 25 and yeah, none of us had ever worked for media or magazines. So it was a really interesting time to start. Within 18 months, the print magazine was in 37 different countries and we had, yeah, something like 17 different revenue streams, which we can dig into because that is not the smartest way to run a business. I have since found out. (laughs) Nice. So maybe let's just go back to... What was that first business you launched in 2001? So the first business I launched, well, it's interesting because it's basically because I got fired um, from my previous job. I was doing sponsorship for the Wiggles and Cirque du Soleil and, uh, and all sorts of, sort of arts and entertainment properties. And when I say I got fired, my boss was like the world's nicest person. I think I was a complete pain in the ass. And I always used to say I want equity in this business. I kind of want to own this business, you know, like a typical millennial before my time in a way. Um, I don't think I ever knew 
what the word equity meant at the time, but I was just like, I want more, I want more. And so he said to me, I think you should go do your own thing. And I left that job uh, with $4,000 and I just kind of started a, a, I do this in inverted commas, like an integrated marketing agency. I had no idea what I was doing. I was completely um, over-servicing, undercharging, but having a hell of a lot of fun. And it was really before... I mean, the word entrepreneur certainly was put on the map and, you know, I was just bumbling along for years. And, uh, yeah, that's what I was kind of doing, marketing, branding, with no prior experience really in that either. However, my last job, the one in sponsorship, I was only there for eight months and it taught me probably more than any job has ever taught me in my life. It was all about um, how to exchange money for, you know, different properties and how to kind of um, collaborate and create relationships. And that really is where this thinking that kind of got me into Collective Hub started, I guess. So did those original businesses kind of transition and then kind of morph into what the Collective Hub is so, now? Or was there like a break? Or Yeah, no, no break, unfortunately. 16 and a half years. I am ready to take a year <laughs> off. So this is a really interesting question because I think people often expect that there's a linear path to where you land. And let me tell you, Collective, like if I actually drew a line from where I started as a horse riding instructor in England, that was my first ever job, to working in real estate to sponsorship to conference and event management like all sorts of different things and actually in isolation not one single thing makes any sense whatsoever to own a global media brand but when I kind of go back through it all um, and this is probably what's really important for the listeners it all kind of makes perfect sense in its illogical nonsensical kind of way Um, and not just in a business sense, but also personal things that I've come up against. I mean, I've been through a divorce. I gave up drinking 13 and a half years ago. So it's all these things that, you know, you can either choose to pull you down or go, actually, that freaking fuels me because it's from those things and those pain points where I've actually um, utilized them to, you know, learn that resilience and push me harder. So I'm kind of grateful for everything. And I think that's something that's really important for people to remember. But yeah, I look back through my career and I go, horse riding instructor. What's that got to do with global <laughs> media? Well, I'll tell you what, I was digging poo for many days, you know, at four o'clock in the morning and I learned to kind of hustle and get, um, you know, down to grassroots and get dirty and just get in and get the job done. So, you know, conference and event management taught me about project management skills and detail, which by the way, I'm absolutely terrible. <laughs> but, you know, and collective now, one of our big arms is you know events we do maybe sometimes four events a week so you know it all kind of held me in good stead in one way or another to get to where I am now. Did entrepreneurial pressures have anything to do with like you mentioned your divorce and like drinking and you know things like that? train smash. (laughs) What do I always say anything's possible I look back at my life and how it was um we're really pre-giving up drinking so Um, I've given up drinking 13 and a half years ago. I mean, my life was very, very different. I was living life according to other people's expectations of who I should be. And, you know, I was really lost. And it's what I say about this is, I mean, don't give up drinking. My God, I have more champagne and we have more parties than anyone I know. (laughs) Like I'm around alcohol a lot. I just choose not to drink. But it's not about the alcohol. It's about I think we all find certain ways to self-sabotage or hold ourselves back or keep ourselves small. 
and um, a lot of that has to do with societal expectation and as you get braver and braver and you know do more and more work on yourself whatever form that may take I think we start to allow ourselves to step into the best version of ourselves and who we truly want to be so even though those times in the times have been hard um, I think they're extraordinary for growth and they don't define me they're not my story they're a part of the story but they're certainly not who I am anymore I've read about when you were starting the collective hub there were some periods where you know you were sort of staying up late at night oh. worrying about kind of accounting <laughs> finances cash flow all of that yeah. can you take us back to that time and just kind of give us an insight into what it was like when you were starting out because I'm sure it's something that a lot of founders are probably going through at the moment or have experienced themselves yeah absolutely look I think there's almost two sides to, to entrepreneurialism and it's about um, you know firstly it's about you know getting really clear on what your why is and your purpose is and your passion and you know that'll evolve over time and then it's about you know understanding what your weaknesses are and what you're not good at and then surrounding yourself with the people who can fill those gaps and you know just having this unwavering self-belief because I mean, I had at least 80 doors slammed in my face before someone said a yes to Collective Hub to taking out, you know, some advertising and underwriting some of the startup costs. But, you know, so I had to build that tenacity and that self-belief and just be able to keep going. And that's difficult. So I'm a creative and I'm a visionary and I'm kind of like um, an eternal optimist and I believe anything's possible. So that's one side of it. And then the other side is that very real commercial side and as you grow and your business gets bigger it becomes more and more difficult and I'm quite frankly absolutely terrible at operations and finance and IT and legal and um, HR I freaking hate that stuff with a passion and so when you start out it's kind of okay and you might have experienced this as well I mean as I said there were three staff they were all under the age of 25 you know us paying everyone the minimum wage and we were all in it together having fun and everyone knew what was going on and you kind of yell across the office it's like hey let's do this deal let's do this deal and it's passionate exciting it's juicy it's fun every day even though it's hard but as you start to grow um, and this is almost a bit of an irony the more you step into your why and your purpose and your passion and I've just written a whole book called purpose about this um, the more you step into this bigger company and this beast and I think that's where you've got to be really careful not to lose yourself. And I don't know how much of you've gone through this, Chris, but I'm sure to some degree, at least, everyone does. And so that's when I needed to get really smart and get, you know, a good CFO, some good financial people, people who could manage HR and legal and all the things that I was terrible at because, yeah, you stay awake at night. And uh, we might dig more into it and where collectives at now, but I'm awake a lot at night again at the moment. <laughs> so, we, yeah, we can talk about that, which is interesting. Business goes through many different phases. 100%. So how do you, as a founder, I find that sometimes those roles like CFO and, you know, even like kind of HR manager, things like that, they they seem to always have this accompanying price tag to some of those roles where you're like, how can I afford a CFO? Um, and then often people with businesses that have CFOs will go, how can you not afford a C CFO? Yeah, yeah. Is that, was it hard to kind of like hire those initial roles when the business was kind of scaling up as opposed to say, I don't know, hiring another salesperson who's kind of directly generating revenue? Yeah, so I might break this into two parts as well. So the 11 years I talk about when I had my own businesses prior to Collective Hub, that was that brought its own set of problems in a way and some people might be able to relate to this. So I only ever had three staff. That's the most I ever had for 11 years. 
and my business was very one-dimensional. I just could not work out how to scale. I couldn't kind of go to the next level. And I was making a lot more money than I'm making now in terms of profitability and lifestyle and everything else. But it was frustrating because I just couldn't work out how to grow. Um, the It was completely the opposite with Collective Hub. It's almost like the day I opened the doors, the floodgates opened, and I was like, oh, my God, if I had you know $100 million now, I'd know exactly what to do with it because I could see so clearly what I needed and, and how I needed to grow. The tricky thing, of course, is exactly as you say, what do you choose first? Because do you go with, in our case, you know, content generating people? You know, we that's the business after all, you know, whether we're generating content across print or digital or through events or, you know, any number of social media channels or podcasts or whatever it is, or do we invest in, you know, the salespeople and the revenue generating people? And there's kind of you know, always that kind of dance between the two sides. And I have not always got it right. I mean, there was one point, I think maybe year two, Collective Hub, I took on like four salespeople in a week and I had no money and I was just like, okay, well, we pay at the end of the month. So, you know, there are big salaries. And I was like, okay, I've got 30 days. Like they've got to bring in some revenue. <laughs> so sometimes it's almost like you can retreat or you can just chuck it all in and go for gold. And, you know, I think in that instance it kind of worked, but I've had plenty of other instances where, you know, I've bet the farm and it hasn't worked. And that resilience piece, people often say, you know, how do you do it? And it's like, I think it's just you you go forward and you don't fail and then you push a bit further or you go forward and you fail but you learn something from it and you just, you you. Um, I think there's that sort of external validation and then you build up your internal validation more and more and more. So, yeah, it's an interesting journey. But I didn't really answer your question. What you said was about, um, you know, when to hire. I think the other thing is about that first 11 years with three staff. I know people said to me all the time, how many staff have you got? And I always felt embarrassed. I was like, oh, three, and I try and make up other numbers in my head. And and now what I've learned is actually the smartest way to run a business by far is to outsource as much as possible and have as many people on contracts as possible. We had, uh, with Collective, we got to 32 full-time staff um, last year. Um, I've now got 10 full-time staff. So, But even when we had 32, I had 80 writers who were all freelance. So it was like if I needed a writer in Germany to write about tech or I needed someone in Milan to talk about fashion, I could pull people in as and when I needed them and pay them per story as opposed to them sitting at a desk for two weeks and kind of chewing up my time. So I think what I've learned is, you know, the more that we can outsource, the more we can have people on a freelance or consultancy basis, the better. So, yeah, what I would say to people, that was a long way of saying it, don't, co- don't get caught up in thinking you need a huge number of staff. You know, that's just an ego thing. It's about how do we work, you know, the old cliche, smarter, not harder. What's the process of going from 32 to 10? How, mm. Like, what have you outsourced? <laughs> uh and just, like, what are some tools? Are there tools and you know, kind of sites and things like that that make it easier to outsource certain? Yeah, so I mean, that's that's a hard thing, and that's largely what I've been writing. I, um, I've just been in Byron for a month, um, finishing my next book, which is called Risk and Resilience, which will be out this year, and it's largely about you know the first five years of business and I mean I listen to a lot of other podcasts as well how I built this and things and there seems to be this kind of uh, almost a cycle in business it's like years one to three is like yeah everything's amazing you know I don't care and I'm not paying myself it's all about the passion and we're disrupting and we're being different and all that kind of thing and this seems to be the world over you look at you know 
Airbnb or Uber. It's like so many amazing businesses that are huge now. And they all seem to hit about year four. And it's suddenly like, whoa, reality sets in. We've got this big team. We've got these overheads. You know, we're nearly sinking ourselves. And also what's interesting when you come into an industry and you're a disruptor and you're leading and you're um, setting the trend, not following the trend. And then suddenly all these kind of copycats or other people come in and you're no longer the disruptor and you're no longer the cool kid. And it's like, you kind of almost need to buy yourself the time and space to actually rethink and go, whoa, where am I going now? You know, as an entrepreneur, we want bright, shiny things all the time. So last year, 2017, I had to make some tough decisions around, um, we actually made some redundancies, which I've never done in 17 and a half years. But I suddenly realized that um, that me being not a detail-orientated or an operational person, I kind of had taken my eye off the ball a little bit and I suddenly realised that I had six direct reports and a lot of them were saying, coming to me and saying the exact same thing and I was like, hang on, we are grossly inefficient. Like, what's happening? How did I, how did I lose this? And I tell you that because I always wear my heart on my sleeve and I've said from the day that I started that I'll be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. And so it's about sharing the what's and all and hoping that people don't make the same mistakes. And what I would say is, you know, leave your ego at the door. It's very easy to kind of build quickly and it's exciting and everything's kind of, you know, new and, and then... Um, you know, and then you can also sink it very, very quickly. So beware. <laughs> yeah, cool. So you mentioned the kind of the sleepless nights potentially coming back over that period. Like, yeah, yeah. is that, um, I guess, yeah, how do you personally kind of deal with those sort of like ebbs and flows in business? Yeah, so the sleepless nights a bit are because um, we, you know, What's interesting is, and I talk a lot about this, um, you know, once you step into your purpose, and purpose for Collective Hub is three words. It's igniting human potential. Like, that is as complex or as simple as it gets. And so I've said literally from day one, it's very, very well documented. It actually is completely irrelevant if we're a print magazine or online or events or, you know, a myriad of other things. As long as we can kind of morph, pivot, iterate, change between, you know, as long as we stay true to our purpose and we're giving our community what we want, then that's good. What's tricky, though, when you have this huge beast, I mean, putting a print magazine out every month into 37 countries and then running four events a week, etc., 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 it's just such a huge beast to try and keep the cogs turning. And so what happened was I was getting pulled more and more into the operational side, which I freaking hate. And, you know, I needed to lift continuously out to be able to dream and think up the next thing and be like, what is the next, dis you know, disruption? Really what I should be doing at the moment is kind of traveling the world and going to extraordinary conferences and meeting with thought leaders and having big conversations with, you know, other massive companies to collaborate and do things differently. But I found that every single day, was kind of down in the grind. So that's, I guess, where the sleepless nights come from a bit because you start to get frustrated with yourself. It's like, what should I be doing? Should I close a print mag? No, I don't want to close a print mag. Everyone's closed print mags. Like, I want to keep fighting, you know. Or it's, yeah, how do we do things differently? How do we stay ahead of the curve again? So what I would say is, you know, whatever you do, doesn't matter if you've got one person working for you or you're a solopreneur just stay in your genius zone like stay in your sweetest spot because whenever I'm pulled back into you know doing sales or doing operational stuff it's just it's not the best use of my time what goes through the sort of like rational decision making around should I close a print print mag or should I stop doing this revenue stream 
like, do you have a kind of way to sort of analyse and decide what you should or shouldn't keep going with? A little bit. So we were, Chris and I were laughing before, we were on a panel together, like year one of Collective Hub or something, and I, <laughs> and I remember sitting there quite cockily saying, yeah, well, we've got 17 revenue streams, which is really interesting, and this comes back a bit to, you know, what I was talking about. As you grow and people love, fall in love with your brand and there's so much excitement, all of these opportunities come at you, right? And so I just kept going, yeah, we can do this. Yeah, we can do that. And then it was really only about two years ago I put a very solid litmus test over that. Like people would come to me and say, let's do a fashion label together and we can call it collective. And as an entrepreneur, my natural response is, yeah, let's do that because I can fly to China. I can learn about the supply chain because I know nothing about that and I'll be testing myself and I can prove that I can do something in fashion as well. And then I went back to, does that ignite human potential? Or no, not for what I'm trying to achieve with Collective Hub. So I started going from those 17 different revenue streams and got very, very clear on, you know, we are a print product, we are digital and we are events. And, you know, that bored the crap out of me <laughs> but because it then becomes quite linear and quite predictable. And, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, we want to keep exploring. And so I really, you know, 2017, I really consolidated and went, well, they, they're the three main things that we do and let's get those working and then we can fly again. And so, yeah, for me, it was about really kind of scaling back to be able to scale up again, you know, and to buy myself, as I said, the time and space really to think about what is collective next? Because to be honest, I don't know if it's print. I don't know if it's even digital. And, um, probably something in advance but my gut feel is it's probably a really freaking big tech play i don't know what that is yet you know it's interesting when you've um we've got a really nice problem you know we've got a huge um highly engaged you know hungry um loyal community and following which is something a lot of businesses don't have it's just that how do we take them on a journey with us? How do we evolve, you know? Because otherwise we're going to stagnate, you know? I don't know if I want a print mag for another six months even, quite frankly, right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is the first anyone said this. <laughs> I'm talking about my thought process. But, you know, I think it's really important. You see so many businesses, Kodak, for example. I mean, if their purpose was, I don't know, you know, to create extraordinary memories then maybe they would have morphed and they wouldn't have stayed with film and they'd be an extraordinary company still so I think it's important to you know keep evolving keep changing keep relevant keep disrupting keep fresh for your community but also for your own soul and sanity I don't know if you saw that um, Kodak share price recently doubled because they oh. launched a coin. Ah, so maybe, I have not. maybe Collective needs to do an initial coin offering. <laughs> I know, I feel like we it's like some kind of, I don't know, VR, AI, robotics, driverless cars. Like, is that Collective needs to, yeah, it's kind of, kind of cryptocurrency. Yeah, I feel like we need to evolve into one of these. I'm just not sure what yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from your, because yeah, I mean, thinking back to that panel, I was very impressed. I was like, wow, 17 different revenues dreams and from kind of how you talk about like that sort of saying yes to every opportunity it's interesting because that was a principle we always had was like yeah. you know we would always say yes to everything yeah. and then just kind of find out how to do it yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. in the early days that served us really well because you know the biggest thing you need in the business is cash flow and yeah. you know as long as someone's willing to pay for a service yeah. it was we would kind of put our hands up and say we could do it yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so what's your sort of I guess advice based on what you've learned about whether people should like try to diversify their revenue streams or focus? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it kills me to say it's, I mean, right now I would say focus. I think it very much depends on your size, your profitability and things as well. Um, I think when you're running pretty close to baseline, it's difficult to diversify. Although, you know, we could have a million arguments a million different ways because uh, what made me diversify so much in the beginning was... Um, let me just try and do some maths around this. So the first issue of Collective Hub, so for those listening, just try and um, draw a parallel to whatever you're doing. But a print magazine cost me $350,000 to put the first issue out. So I went into a market, as I said, no one knew who I was at all. I had no background. So if I went with what traditional people were doing, there's no way I would have ever done it. I mean, people were selling at the time, say, an ad for $8,000, and then we would have had to discount it to $5,000. My maths is terrible, but divide 350 by $5,000. It's like 70 ads or something. I would have had to sell just to break even on that magazine. So I had to think really differently from the start. And the first deal I did, which is fairly well documented, was with Commonwealth Bank. I've still never borrowed a cent from anyone, not even a bank. Um, But they actually gave me $200,000 up front. Now, that's after knocking on 80 doors. But what I did, which went against everything, was I pre-sold. I knew I needed money. So I pre-sold and I said, um, give me $50,000 an issue for the first four issues. And um, luckily, Andy Lark, who was the CMO there at the time, still loved print, loved entrepreneurs and bought into my story. And I just had to think differently about what are my saleable, tangible assets? What have I got? Because I sure as hell didn't have anything that any of the other actual media players had. So I just was like, okay, well, I'll give you 5,000 copies of the mag that you can give out to um, all your stakeholders. You know, I'll do some editorial and some advertorial. I'll come and do some speaking gigs. So this is really important about sort of launching and the hustle and how you have to think differently about getting money. And then, as you say, as we kind of grew, I was like, I this print magazine on its own as a business model was never going to be sustainable. It just wasn't. So I had to think really quickly, okay, what does everyone want? So straight up, I started doing events and, um, and again, and, you know, I wrote a whole book about this called Money and Mindfulness two years ago. Um, because we had no cash, I was like, well, how can I do things differently? Okay, there's got to be other currencies. So I started going to well-known restaurants and I'd say, can you give us, you know, seats, food and beverage and seats for 120 people? I'm not going to pay you anything. We'll take the revenue from the night and um, we'll put, you know, an ad in the magazine, we'll do a story, we'll promote you in other ways. So, so that's how I kind of started to grow and diversify. A lot of it was just, yeah, making it up as I went, kind of going, I don't have any money, but I need to carry the message and I need to make other revenue streams somehow. So, yeah, definitely the first few years was just like throwing a lot of <laughs> a lot of things out there and hoping something stuck. And it was fun, you know. It was fun because I was learning, I was trying different things, but it wasn't sustainable. So then that's when we had to really you know, consolidate and go, okay, this is what we stand for. So this is something, I mean, it's obviously in some ways, you know, perfectly designed for say publishing or, you know, kind of advertising media sort of industries, but I've always been quite fascinated about whether people think that brand funding can be used to fund traditional startups as well, because I feel like there's a lot of people now who are going, I want to start a business and the first thing is like I need to go find investment yeah, but then they're yeah. giving away equity in exchange for you know kind of like money but really it's like there's a lot of people out there with like a lot of money if you can kind of 
find where the brand and the company fit, there might be like an opportunity for you to just sort of raise sponsorship as opposed to giving up equity? Absolutely. Similar to the deal with Commonwealth Bank? Yeah, and honestly, my book, not that I'm trying to do a blatant plug, but Money and Mindfulness, I wrote exactly about this. And I wrote that in response to the market saying, but we have no money, we can't start. And I'm like, no, this is, I'm calling BS on this because I had no money when I started. And yes, I went into media, so I knew that I would have an actual asset that I could trade against, but I didn't know what that looked like at the time. And so what I encourage people to do is, you know, whatever, I don't know, whatever business you're starting, think about, and it's hard, you really got to train yourself to do this, but what are my saleable, tangible assets? Like, I don't know, a lot of people now come out of, you know, traditional jobs. So think about, well, what was my skill set there? And can I trade off that for a while? And yeah, I think you're right. There are so many different paths you can go in terms of raising money, but a lot of people tend to go down the more traditionalist paths of, um, you know, raising capital. And then, yeah, they give away a lot of equity. And also I think I chose very specifically not to do that at the beginning because I didn't want to be beholden to anyone and I knew people would think I was absolutely on crack launching a print magazine into such a saturated market and no one would have backed me and if they did back me they would have made me play so safe and I needed to do it really differently but yeah I mean there's a lot of money out there and you just have to look at influencers now or you know people with big Instagram followings I mean that is a currency in itself you know people get paid myself included a lot of money um, you know to do ambassadorships and all sorts of other things so you know I think it's an extraordinarily exciting time for everyone because there are so many different ways to make money. There are so many different exchanges. There are so many things that people didn't think were worth, you know, it wasn't a currency before and it now is. I mean, numbers, data, this is all a currency. So the more you can build your followings and your communities and that kind of thing, the more it's going to work for you. Stay tuned after the break for more from Founders University. Founders Uni is brought to you by Squarespace. If you're inspired to start the next great Australian startup or simply launch a creative project, why not jump online and experiment with a range of e-commerce ready templates for you to launch your next entrepreneurial adventure. Don't forget to use the offer code PTV for 10% off your first purchase. Have you got tips on people out there who are sort of um, entrepreneurial or starting businesses on how to grow their own personal Instagram following? Because you've got over 100,000 people following you, I think. um, I've got... 113, nearly 114,000 and Claire has got 164,000. It's very interesting. I mean, that never happened purposefully, it, um, which is silly in hindsight because it's, it's worth so much now. But I think what I would say is I can't stand it. I met a guy actually yesterday who said, I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm an influencer. I was like, I just wanted to vomit. I was like, no, you don't do that. Like, It's fine to be an influencer, but what do you actually do? Like, I challenge people to say, if Instagram closed tomorrow, what do you stand for? What's your purpose? What's your why? What's your business model? Because we can't be reliant on these third-party platforms. And plus, it just sounds wanky. But (laughs) (laughs) But, um, for me, I think I just started. And again, you know, I, I probably really need to look at evolving that at the moment. I mean, mine was all about... I worked out, well, what am I about? Well, I'm about inspiring people and lifting them higher and saying that anything's possible and just doing it and then talking about it. So my Instagram was very much, has always been about 
um, and largely it's notes to myself, by the way, when I'm like, go, get out there, do it. It's like, I need to hear that. So, you know, we teach what we need to learn. Uh, so mine's very much about positive quotes and, you know, getting out there and hustling and that kind of thing. And so I think it just kind of grew organically. I mean, now every second person puts a positive quote out there. So it's time for me to release a messenger to completely morph that as well. But I mean, I think absolute authenticity you know if you're trying to be someone that you're not then it's it's not going to do anything for you and I think that goes across you know every single realm of business so yeah it's it's easy to try and be a me too or a copycat of something else but unless it's true to what you really want to do in life it's not going to work do you have any sort of like timetables of how much content you should be publishing personally and um my look I probably break all the rules I mean collective you know Gosh, well, we have 17 or so, 17. That seems to be my big number, doesn't it? Maybe I'm making that up. Anyway, <laughs> we have a lot of um, social... I feel like it's a, it is a catchy number, though. Yeah, I'm why. sure BuzzFeed has research on like, I feel really inauthentic yeah. now. Collective is like, you know, one Facebook page. I have two Facebook pages. Um, then we, yeah, we have a lot of different, you know, handles and things across um, from, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest... Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you know, and so there's a lot of different things. And then obviously collectivehub.com, which we post generally between five and eight stories a day-ish. Um, so, yeah, it's a, as you would know, it's a constant, you know, posting. Now, let's wind this back for founders because what's important is that's really overwhelming. People are like, oh, my God, I don't know if I should be doing it on Instagram. Should I be doing a, you know, a grid post or should I be doing a story or should that go on Facebook or should that be LinkedIn or should it be Twitter? What I would say, the cleverest thing by far, because every single one of us can be content producers now, and largely that's why I'm questioning my business model now, is because I'm so excited that so many people can own the media now and be the media now. So I'm starting to question our relevance in this space, you know? But what's great is, I think, yeah, everyone should be able to create content but what I would say is this um, say you're interviewing say I'm interviewing Chris then I would probably do a long form story in the print magazine but then I would take parts of that and I would you know turn it into three articles that we'd put on Collective Hub over time. Then I would do one Instagram post of Chris and I sitting here doing our interview and then you know I might do a couple of tweets of outtakes from what he said and then I might at the same time be doing some video content that we would plant on Facebook so I guess what I would say is don't overwhelm yourselves don't kind of think oh my gosh there's so many channels and I don't know where to start just get really clear on what it is that you want to do in life and then try and slice and dice whatever content it is that you're creating and take it across multiple channels so that you're not recreating all the time and you know driving yourself nuts because it's time consuming and it's expensive. So you've talked a lot about this kind of why, finding your purpose. Can you, for people out there that say aren't quite sure what their why is or what that means yeah. or what their purpose is yeah. or, um, yeah, I guess just kind of maybe explain the concept but then also talk about if there's any simple exercises that people can do to try to kind of uncover their why. Yeah, so I think... Um I think this is this great elusive thing and it almost sounds arrogant, you know, that I wrote a book on purpose. It's like, who am I to write that? But but I only ever write from a layman's perspective and from my own experience. And what I have learned is that when you actually step into something that feels true to you, then things just start to flow. 
By that, I mean, you know, when you're trying to push and you're trying to control things, and that's our natural state, you know, I want this to happen, I'm going to make this happen. And I know whenever I'm doing that, and I've certainly been through phases of that in the last 18 months, then everything becomes really difficult. And it's like walking through mud, and you just get angry and frustrated and fearful, and all these other emotions come up. But when you find your purpose and you step into truly what it is that you should be doing, like when Collective dropped into my head and heart, it was just like, oh my God this makes so much sense i just want to do positive stuff for people like i had no idea no idea at all at the time how i was going to do it but when you get really clear on what it is that you want to do i think the how i mean this sounds a bit woo woo but i can't even explain to you like 100 percent every single cell in my body says the why or sorry the how has a way of sorting itself out and the serendipity and the synchronicity once i got very clear on the idea for collective hub all these people just started, you know, coming to me and all these things started evolving and it just felt easy, even though it was hard and we came up against cash flow and all sorts of things. I just kind of did it with ease and grace and flow. Now, finding purpose, because people say, I don't know where to start. And this is going to be quite counterintuitive, what I'm going to say. But in my experience, um, finding your purpose often comes from the most difficult and challenging times in life, like those real pain points. So start to think of, because when you're in pain, whether it's physical or emotional or you know any other myriad of terms, the easiest thing to do is want to curl up on the couch and go, I just want to shut the world out and isolate. But actually, you know, if you're going through a divorce, like I wrote my first book in 2004, I went through a divorce, I gave up drinking, I alienated my parents for three years. My life was a freaking train smash. And then I decided to, I just, some glimmer of hope in me went, oh, I just want to search for happiness. What is happiness? And I went around Australia and I started asking people what happiness meant to them and ended up writing this book um, called Happiness Is. And I sold 36,000 copies of that book in the first 12 months. And um, then I was very happy. but, you know, the pain point for Collective Hub was I'm so frustrated with traditional media and seeing Kim Kardashian's ass on the cover of every magazine or conversely reading about extraordinary you know, business people, but all I hear is about their success. I don't understand how they got there. I don't understand. And so I was frustrated, like hugely frustrated. And so that was a pain point. It could be as easy as, you know, I don't know, you've had a baby and the nappy is chafing the baby or something. You're like, wow, these nappies are really crap, literally. (laughs) And so you go, I need to try and do this. So in my experience, when you get really angry or frustrated or pissed off, that is the best time from that space to actually mobilize yourself and use that as the fuel to find your passion and your purpose. So apart from selling 36,000 books, what what did you find made people happy? (laughs) Do you know what? And um, I've since tried to delve a lot more into this. And I should say that was 2004. So um, I left my previous job in 2001. So even though I launched Collective Hub in 2013, I started my accidental foray into publishing a lot, um, you know, a lot further back. Books in comparison were very one dimensional and kind of a lot easier. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what made people happy was interesting. Two things happened. Either people said what they thought they should say like walking on the beach holding hands with my partner you know really simple stuff and maybe that actually is the truth and that is just you know where the elixir to happiness lies um or people got quite angry because even though it's such a simple question you know uh, i think 
when I challenged people and said, what makes you happy? I really saw a lot of really unhappy people out there. They were just angry. They were challenged by such a simple question because they realized that actually they weren't living on purpose or they weren't where they wanted to be. So some people were like, I don't want to answer that. This is really hard. So yeah, it's interesting how something so simple can be so challenging and bring up so much stuff and be a trigger for so much for people. Yeah, cool. So so going back to the idea of like, I guess, like content publishing yes. and the like. I, mean, I should interview you on this. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would your advice be to someone who wanted to get into maybe not necessarily print publishing today yeah. no don't do that do not do not do print publishing do not <laughs> do you know what I'll, get, I'll, I'll say a disclaimer I mean absolutely do not but but um, even though the print magazine really hasn't made money it's probably the smartest thing I ever 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 did because what it did was when everything was digital it, um, it provided something physical and tangible that in the first few years at least you know, we partnered with every single conference, um, entrepreneurial, creative, you know, in Australia and a lot in America. And it gave us something, you know, to put on every seat or in every single goodie bag. And so it was kind of like, um, you know, an expensive business card. And so really from there, we led people into our digital and event assets. But yeah, still the smartest thing and something so beautiful and something I'm so proud of. But yeah, don't get into print. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, it's a really stand out. I found on the like magazine stands yeah. from everything else that was out there. Thank but um, you. but what would your advice be to someone who wanted to get into something content based? So I don't know, like someone who might have studied journalism, or they're an ex editor, or they've they they love creating things and putting them out there. Yeah, which is such a beautiful thing. And and the thing is, um, you know, I'm really big on the side hustle, as you are as well. I think, uh, you know. If you're not ready to jump wholly and solely into your own business, you know, have your own job, but start a blog or start an Instagram account or, you know, just start dabbling and creating content on the side and, you know, just just start to see. And I think if something's true and authentic and it's, you know, different and it's got integrity, then it's going to stand on its own and it's going to start to amass a following. And from there, you can... You know, if it's a blog that you start and an Instagram account, well, then you can start to build it and take it into other areas or do it more frequently. Or then you might want to start running workshops, you know, on that topic to diversify. Or you might want to start making video content. But I think there's, you know, there's certainly so many extraordinary tools out there. I mean, look at Canva. Gosh, Melanie's done extraordinarily, extraordinarily well. Um, there are so many inexpensive ways. You know, Teachable is a great platform now. We've just started using to create some, you know, digital masterclasses and things like that so yeah i am i'm not the expert read read collective or go on collective.com or pedestrian i think you have lots of um different tools and things as well but i mean that's largely what we talk about what are the tools to do this kind of thing so yeah i think there's it's a lot cheaper to enter the market now yeah you've met lots of like amazing entrepreneurs through the journey yeah. like you know the likes of richard branson or the founder of airbnb and yeah yeah, you know, yeah what are some lessons for you that were maybe like unexpected that really stood out from some of the people that you've met oh so many so many and <laughs> the thing is what i also say and i think i know I, I digress a lot but little things come up to me that i think are important for the audience i have a rule unless i've met someone personally in life i can aspire to kind of their attributes and what i think they stand for but i've also learned that there's a lot of you know pr and spin and hype around a lot of big celebrities um but you know a lot of the people i've met gosh so humble. I mean, Jamie Oliver, um, I got to 
do a cover and I spent a couple of hours exclusively with him when he was out here and um, him, his PA, Sai and I are on the email, you know, at least once a week we're chatting about different ideas and things and again, time and space to, <laughs> to be able to lift higher and do stuff, you know, and collaborate more with people like him and Richard Branson who's been an extraordinarily, extraordinary supporter of mine. Um, the people that I've met of that calibre, they have one trait absolutely in common and that is that they're down to earth and they're humble and they're really genuinely giving. Um, I talk a lot about the Richard Branson experience but I was lucky enough in 2014 to be invited to NECA, I think before it kind of, <laughs> before everyone started going on and junket over there and um, and it was amazing, a few things happened there. Richard, uh, it was the day after the Big Virgin um, Galactic disaster happened, the, the crash. And so I thought, why on earth would Richard turn up, you know? And there he was the next day, um, sandy feet upon his um, his coffee table. And I said to him, why are you here? Like, you just had this global disaster. And he said, well, it was really important to go there and front that, you know? That was really important as a founder and as the kind of owner. And but then he said, but what was really important was to then get out of people's way. Like he said, there's 400 people there who actually know what they're doing and I needed to empower them. That's their job. And the third thing he said was, I made a commitment to be here. And I was like, wow, there's 28 entrepreneurs here. He's never met any of us. He made a commitment to be here. So there were three big lessons. And then we got the opportunity on the island to pitch to Rich. And I think we had eight minutes or something. And it was really interesting because I watched all these people say really complex things like, Richard, can we rebrand our entire company Virgin? The guys just met them, you know. What I've learned is that A, everything is based on relationships and B, make it easy for people to say yes. You know, the bigger you get in this world, the more people throw at you and ask you and pull from you and all that kind of thing. So all I said was, I didn't pitch him anything. I just said, can I send you a box of magazines to the island every month? And he said, of course. Bang. So um, a year later, I stayed in touch with him and his PA, Helen, and I emailed Helen, I saw Richard was coming to Australia, and I said, can I shoot him for a cover? And she said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then she said to me, actually, um, would you mind co-chairing the Virgin Way conference with Richard at the art gallery? <laughs> so there he was. And this is because Helen, literally, I emailed her, and she said, Lisa, I was just reading your magazine in bed last night. See, print, it works. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we'd stayed in touch and built a relationship. So there I ended up sitting on stage with Richard, you know, chairing this conference which was freaking amazing and um and then I flew up to make peace island on the Noosa River with him and the guys for the weekend like so yeah everything is about relationships the slow build you know what's in it for me what's in it for you and then also making it easy for people to say yes yeah cool and um another person I've seen pop up on your Instagram a couple of times is Malcolm Turnbull oh yes so <laughs> from a like, what do you and Malcolm chat about? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Um, people might not know this. I come from a long line of politicians. My grandfather was knighted by the Queen. I am, um, yeah. So I, I, when I was 23, I always thought I was going to be a politician. I was heavily involved in politics, all voluntary. And again, what we were talking about before, in a completely illogical way like that was a great grounding for collective in terms of you know getting your hustle on knowing how to build a community and all that kind of thing um 
I have very little interest in politics and especially how it's, you know, run these days. But I think it's always interesting trying to stay abreast of, you know, what is happening from an education, a health, you know, a tech, STEM, you know, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I like to kind of keep my hand in. Um, I think for me, particularly with Collective and bigger than Collective, like my own personal vision and mission is to be across multiple industries, multiple geographic locations, multiple races, creeds, everything else, you know, and um, and I believe that everyone's equal and we should create the same opportunities for everyone. So I'm always interested just to hear, just to try and be at the forefront of people who are in the know and, um, you know, what's on the agenda and where I can get involved. Yeah, cool. So having spoken to entrepreneurs kind of all over the world yeah. and having been an entrepreneur in Australia yourself, yes. what are some of the positives and negatives for entrepreneurs in Australia? Uh, well, I mean, I, th I think Australia is, has an extraordinary entrepreneurial culture. I think, you know, we see so many amazing startups. We've interviewed, I think we counted the other day across all our assets, we've interviewed like over 6,000 people now. Not me personally, I've done very few, unfortunately. Uh, and I just, I think, uh, you know, there's just a huge amount of opportunity. Uh, the attitudes here are amazing. I think what I'm really starting to see is a lot of extraordinary entrepreneurs come from regional Australia, which I'm loving. I'm absolutely loving that. Um, you know, I was down in Wagga recently and I was treated like the queen, you know, paraded down the main street of Wagga. And I was just like, wow, there are so many people with amazing ideas. And I think the advances in technology and different tools, it just means that isolation is no longer an excuse like anyone in any place in the world can do something extraordinary and so I think we're starting to see you know Atlassian and Canva and some amazing businesses coming out of Australia so yeah I think we're well and truly on the map. You've written 17 books around entrepreneurship like what are some of your well, let's be real. The first, I've actually like written, I think, 24 books or something now, but the first 19, no one ever read. <laughs> so, but, but you have you have written them. So what what are you, some of your, like, the most practical pieces of advice that people can kind of, like, put into place? I think the first thing is, um, you know, get really clear on your purpose and your why. Like, what is it that you're wanting to do in this world? And that, you know... Then the second piece around that I would say is, you know, surrender and detach from outcome because your first idea will never be the idea that actually flies, but you've got to be able to start somewhere. So, you know, come up with what it is that you think you want to do and then be open to kind of that morphing or changing as you go. Um, the second thing is once you have your idea, you know, don't do death by paperwork. You know, gone are the days of writing a 300-page laborious business plan and, you know, <laughs> It, it just forget it like you can test with the market you know immediately there's real-time feedback across social media so throw something up on Facebook and I mean this is still as simple or as complex as my ideas get I might be like hey would you attend an event on <clears throat> you know this topic and I've not done a piece of you know um I've given no rigor. I haven't worked out any budgets. I haven't worked out where I'll hold it or anything yet. I've just said, would you attend an event on this? If people on, let's say, Facebook start saying, yes, I would, then I'll be like, hmm, okay, seems to be an interest. Then I'll look at, you know, 
sort of starting to map it out and um, put some kind of frame around it. And then I'll go back and say, well, it's going to be on this date and it's going to be this price. And then if there's still interest, then I'll actually put the rigor behind building the business model and starting to create it and take it to market. So I think the beauty these days is you can test and iterate really, really quickly. So yeah, number one, find your purpose. Number two, test the market quickly. Number three, you know, surround yourself with an incredible team. And as we've talked about before, you know, that does not have to be anyone that's a full-time employee. You can get freelancers, um, consultants, you know, get people for free, like trade different things, you know, get interns, whatever it is, just surround yourself with extraordinary people who can fill in the gaps, like support your weaknesses. Um, Number four, have an insatiable self-belief. So, you know, that's hard to um, to get, particularly as you step into a bigger and bigger game. So continue to, you know, educate yourself. Listen to amazing podcasts, read books, you know, um, whatever it is, attend conferences, you know, join networking groups. Like just build that bank of self-belief, whatever it takes. Because as an entrepreneur, it's a hell of a lot of fun, but it's also, you know, you get slapped in the face every single day. So you have to have that tenacity and that kind of self-belief. Um, yeah, they're probably four of the tough ones for now. I could yeah, go cool. on and on and on. There was, on, on, that, on that panel you also spoke about, I think this was around like testing the market and also being probably not afraid. Failing just, fast. Just to, just to get going was you, I think you told me the story of like a friend of yours who was like, kind of wasn't sure what they wanted to do they wanted to do something entrepreneurial you asked them the things they loved and then you got you just kind of workshopped on the spot this like potential oh yeah so that's a little bit what i talked about i remember this is a guy morris because i wrote about it in daring and disruptive it was literally what i talked about he was so frustrated he'd come out of kind of um big corporate or whatever he's like i just don't know what it is so literally this is how quick it was i was like what do you love he's like i love food and i love travel and i said ah would you like to you know where do you love to travel bali okay would you like to run foodie travel tours to Bali I'd love to okay like we literally did this put it up on Facebook who wants to go on a foodie travel tour to Bali boom four people or whatever okay this is kind of interesting how much would it cost us to create this foodie travel tour to Bali okay we reckon it's like you know, 1200 bucks, say. Um, then we put it back up on Facebook. Would you go if it was 1200 bucks? Like eight people. And then we're like, okay, boom, bang. Like, what's that? A minute? <laughs> <laughs> That's how quickly I think we can test a business now, you know? It's like test, like feel into what your passion is. Just throw it out there. Even if like, you know, 20 minutes later, you're like, I'm not really into food travel tours to Bali after all, but hey, that was fun. That's going to give you that external validation and that um, inner self-belief to kind of go, whoa, okay, maybe I'm actually into, you know, I don't know, helping, whatever it is. And then you can try that. So that is the beauty of social media. I mean, if you reverse engineer and go back through you know I'm giving away all my secrets but you go back through a lot of collective hub or Lisa messenger posts we test all the time and you can tell what's worked and hasn't worked because we'll be like woohoo let's do this and then you'll never see it (laughs) (laughs) but that's the beauty these days you know we have this real-time feedback Hmm. and so for yourself personally like with you know you've had up to 24 employees 10 employees, magazine in 37 countries, Mm. writing books, you know, on top of like running this business that's always Mm. on. Mm. How do you kind of personally manage your time and are there any strategies or things that you've kind of incorporated to do that better? A lot. And, um, I, well, if you go back through my Instagram for the last month, you will have seen I've been in Byron for a month and I just got back two days ago. 
And because I think there's a real misdemeanor between being productive and being busy. And the thing is, when I'm in the office, I am busy as hell. Like I'm running around, I'm putting out fires, I'm reacting, and I'm totally not productive a lot of the time. Because, you know, as a CEO or a founder, you're just there kind of dealing with all this stuff. But when I'm out of the office, and this is where I come back to the two words that I keep saying, time and space, it's like I actually have time to create and strategize and, and, you know, put the vision forward and write and do the things that are the best use of me. And uh, let me tell you, I was back in the office for the first day of this year yesterday and it was freaking hectic. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, and so then there are a lot of routines and rituals that I stick to religiously. So, um, so one is, well, I started this environment. I'm not a morning person. I would love to get out of bed at eight every morning, but <laughs> I now get up at five to six every morning and then make a green smoothie. Then it's okay if I have hot chips for lunch because I've done the green smoothie. <laughs> so don't be too hard on yourself. And then I go and do a yoga or a bar class at 6.30 a.m. And then, you know, and then what I'm trying to do now is listen to podcasts and read and educate myself until about 10 a.m. And then I will now go into the office from, say, 10 to maybe 4 or 5, go to the beach, have a swim, like really, you know, let it all out for the day. And then I might do a few more hours of work at night. Don't mistake being busy for being productive. I think we all glorify the notion of being busy. Um, My editor for the print magazine, Amy, she actually works from Kayama. I see her maybe once every two months now. And so this is the beautiful thing. I focus a lot more. And so when I said we've downscaled to 10 staff, I don't even include her as a staff. She's a freelancer. And that is my full-time editor of the magazine but um she yeah she works from Kayama she has a baby she's got another one on the way so I'm all about output and you know KPIs so what is it that you're going to deliver me and then I don't really care if you do it in the office or you do it somewhere else so that's that's really what 2018 is about for me Awesome. Well, I think that's everything that I've got for you today, Lisa. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Hopefully that all makes sense. Oh, by the way, entrepreneurs, their brain kind of goes everywhere. You get asked one question, you go on a completely different tangent. So hopefully everyone can follow that. And there's some little nuggets in there. And I've been as kind of authentic and honest. And I think that's the only way we can all be to kind of lift each other higher. So if people want to track you down or they want to kind of follow you or like what the Collective Hub's doing, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so Lisa Messenger across any channel or Collective Hub across any other channel or collectivehub.com. So, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. No, thank you. I love what you guys are doing and it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of it. That's it for another episode of Founders University. This episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Hop on to squarespace.com, buy a domain and set up a website with one of their beautifully designed templates. And don't forget to use the offer code PTV to get 10% off your first purchase. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate us five stars and forward a link to a friend. Stay tuned for another episode of Founders University coming to your headphones and speakers in a fortnight.